Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Hi everyone, it's Vicki Basilica from the ASHP section of Clinical Specialists and Scientists. And I'd like you to welcome you to this special episode of Therapeutic Thursdays. Once again, I am excited to share some of the great clinical content that was a part of the 2020 Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. Please enjoy this highlight and be sure to check back soon for more features. All right, so in order to initiate something on PrEP, there are some eligibility criteria that need to be met um, in order to start. So the first eligibility criteria is ensuring that the person is HIV negative, um, that we also do renal function monitoring. We also do a hepatitis B virus screening. And for women who have an intact uterus and ovaries, that we do pregnancy screening at initiation and every three months. I'll go over each one of these in detail um, in the next few slides. So for HIV testing, it's really important that every single person that we initiate on PrEP has a confirmed HIV negative status. And a negative status means um, a negative HIV test, an FDA approved third or fourth generation HIV test in combination of screening for signs and symptoms of acute HIV. And so we will do an HIV test at initiation and every three months. And this negative status must be confirmed within seven days of initiation. Um, and um, screening for signs and symptoms of acute HIV includes doing a patient interview and asking the patient if they have any um, fever, fatigue, sore throat, swollen lymph nodes, muscle aches and pains, diarrhea or rash within the last four weeks. And the reason that we want to make sure that we do a screening um, for these signs and symptoms is because not every HIV test um, will be able to detect HIV infection um, at that time um, of initiation. And that's because there's a window period for every HIV test out there. So um, uh, this uh, chart here tells shows us what these when these HIV markers become present in the plasma and when they peak. And so for this blue line here, you see that is the HIV RNA. Um, and it can be presentable in plasma as early as 11 days. And then for a, a P24 antigen, which is present in fourth generation tests, uh, antigen can be present uh, usually around uh, 17 days, um, so about two to three weeks. And then antibody can be present in the plasma usually around 21 days. Um, and so uh, for individuals uh, that are tested in our clinic today, um, any event that occurred within the window period may not be able to be detected on that test. Um, a third generation test includes only the antibody. A fourth generation test includes antigen and antibody. Um, and most likely in clinical practices, fourth generation tests are readily available, both point of care as well as laboratory draws. And so you're going to see a lot of utilization of a fourth generation test. So window period time, keep in mind, for a fourth generation test is usually about two to three weeks. And then um, for anybody that's had a high risk encounter, any Earlier than that, um, you can definitely do an RNA test that has a window period of about 11 days. 
All right, eligibility, um, HIV testing. And so what we'll do in clinic is do a rapid test if available, either, either a third generation or fourth generation test. If it is negative, then we'll screen them for signs and symptoms of HIV. And if they respond no, then we assume that person is to be HIV negative. Um, if they respond yes to any of those symptoms, which happens um, frequently, you have three options per the guidelines. One, you can send the blood off for uh, HIV antibody antigen test, a fourth generation test. Um, you can send the blood off for an RNA test. Um, and then you can also uh, retest the person in one month and defer your PrEP initiation. And so um, have them return to clinic in one month and retest, have them close down the window. And that really really is not a preferred option because uh, patients oftentimes will continue to expose themselves in, in high-risk situations during that deferment. So whenever possible, it's best to try to start the person as soon as possible on uh, PrEP, capture that moment of motivation and get them started right away. And the main reason we don't readily use HIV RNA tests, even though it has a smaller window, is because the test um, does cost quite a bit more money than the fourth generation test and also takes more time to process. And so it may delay the results by a couple of days. All right, the second eligibility criteria is to ensure they have adequate renal function. Um, as Renee mentioned, um, both TDF and TAF can have effects on renal function, and so we really want to monitor them. Um, and each medication, TDF and TAF, have different cutoffs. So for TDF, the creatinine clearance cutoff is 60 milliliters per minute, and for TAF, the creatinine clearance cutoff is 30 milliliters per minute. So at initiation, we are always going to collect a serum creatinine. We're also going to screen urine glucose and urine protein through just a standard UA. Um, what becomes different is monitoring. So for TDF, the recommendation is to continue to do a serum creatinine and creatinine clearance monitoring every six months. And for TAF, the recommendation is whatever is clinically appropriate uh, based on that clinician's decision um, and, um, and whatever your clinic deems appropriate. So those are the main differences. So less, a little bit less monitoring for the TAF, but both cases we do want to do a serum creatinine at initiation and do a creatinine clearance calculation. For people who have chronic kidney disease, we're also going to check serum FOS on both, on both medications. The third eligibility criteria is going to be for hepatitis B viral screening. So at initiation, we want to do a full, complete hepatitis B serology. Um, and the main reason for this is because of that black box warning that Renee mentioned. For folks that have a hepatitis B infection, tenofovir can actually treat hepatitis B and can, um, and so can cause the viral suppression of hepatitis B. And when a person suddenly uh, discontinues PrEP, um, it can cause a viremic state and lead to potential uh, liver failure. So we want to screen everybody for hepatitis B screening at initiation. Um, it is not contraindicated for initiation of PrEP. So you can definitely start the personal on PrEP and wait for your results to come back. And even if somebody is hepatitis B positive, they can still continue to be on PrEP. Um, they just need very specific counseling uh, to not discontinue abruptly.
Okay. Um, for folks that um, are non-hepatitis B positive, um, we also want to make sure that we have proof of immunity, and that's going to be done with part of that hepatitis B serology. When a serology panel is done, uh, we will be looking for hepatitis B surface antigen, uh, core antibody, and surface antibody. Those are the three main markers that you're going to be looking at your serology. And basically, the take-home message is anybody with a positive surface antigen needs to be evaluated for acute or chronic hepatitis B. Um, with your core antibody and your surface antibody, that's going to tell you whether or not they've had a natural infection or they've had prior vaccination. And that will help you determine what next steps that you need to do. And this is a great chart from the guidelines um, that tells you exactly what you need to do based on your readings from your serology. So here are some additional labs that are not required for initiation or um, uh, for the continuation of PrEP, but they are good to have. Um, so the first one is hepatitis C screening. Um, because individuals who, with high-risk uh, sexual activity or people who inject drugs, uh, they could potentially contract to hepatitis C. So we're going to screen for hepatitis C at initiation, and we usually do it annually thereafter um, based on the recommendations. Um, also, the recommendations suggest uh, routine STI screening at initiation and per the guidelines they recommend every three to six months. In clinical practice we almost always do STI screening every three months. There's a, a few rare cases where we may defer to every six months such as monogamous relationship um, with an HIV positive partner um, and so but otherwise pretty much everyone is getting screened for STIs every three months. Um, when we do an STI screening we're going to do a full STI panel that includes syphilis, chlamydia, and gonorrhea. Syphilis is done through a blood draw and chlamydia and gonorrhea is going to be tested at all sites that sex is happening at. So we're going to do a throat swab, rectal swab, vaginal swab, and a urine sample um, for any of those locations. So now that we've talked about initiation, let's talk about monitoring. So folks are going to have a follow-up appointment at minimum of every three months. Um, and at every three months, we're going to do a repeat HIV test. And depending on what medication they're on, um, we'll determine whether or not you're going to continue renal function monitoring. So for folks who are on TDF, they will get serum creatinine and creatinine clearance checked every six months. And for TAF, it really is up to you how often you want to check their renal function. Um, hepatitis B uh, virology or serology is going to be done at initiation. Hepatitis C screening we do at initiation annually thereafter. Pregnancy tests uh, for people who are able to conceive, we do that at every three months. STI testing is pretty much every three months um, but can go out as long as every six months. Um, and we always at every appointment always assess for HIV risk and um, making sure that there's still a PrEP indication. And we also counsel on adherence and risk reduction as well at each and every single visit. All right, so I mentioned that we do counseling at each and every single visit. So what do we counsel about? Um, first, 
and foremost, as Renee mentioned, adherence is highly correlated to efficacy. So we're going to counsel on making sure that they take their medication daily. Um, if they miss a dose, it's okay. Go ahead and skip it and take it as soon as you remember, but there is no need to ever double up. And we always counsel on common side effects, um, upset stomach, nausea, headache, loss of appetite, um, and small changes in serum creatinine. Um, the first few side effects I often call uh, call it the startup syndrome, and it usually occurs within the first, if, if anybody gets them, um, it usually is within the first couple of weeks of initiating PrEP, and then after that, um, it usually uh, they usually disappear, and, and, and most patients tolerate the medication very, very, very well. Less common side effects, we always talk about bone mineral changes potentially, um, the risk of hepatitis B, viremia, and lactic acidosis. Um, I also always counsel on starting and stopping prep. Um, you're going to have patients go through what we call seasons of risk, where they may start and stop prep. Um, some may be on it long term for years and years, but many people will be on it for a year and then they'll stop, then they'll restart or even several months and then stop and restart. So what's really important to mention is that it takes seven days um, until you get protection for receptive anal sex and for um, vaginal receptive sex, it takes 21 days to get to, up to protection. Um, so I usually make sure that they I provide counseling on making sure that they use condoms uh, correctly and consistently each and every single time they have sex during that startup period and um, uh, or even abstain if they if they feel necessary. Don't stop talking, taking prep without talking to me first. Um, and then also, if you do stop prep, um, do not restart without getting an HIV test. Okay, and that's again to prevent any resistant cases of HIV. PrEP does not protect against any STI, so we're going to provide lots of counseling on how to reduce someone's risk of acquiring syphilis, gonorrhea, or chlamydia. And that re regular follow-up appointments are required every three months. Again, starting and stopping, um, or stopping and restarting PrEP. When to stop PrEP? Um, so if somebody... Clinically, we will make a recommendation to stop PrEP if there's renal dysfunction decline. Um, if they, their creatinine clearance uh, drops below 60 to 50, um, oftentimes we'll make a recommendation to switch to TAF. Um, and um, it's really important that you notice any drops in creatinine clearance that is not related to uh, um, creatine supplements, workout um, supplements, or even just strenuous exercises, because you will oftentimes see jumps in serum creatinine based on that. Okay. Um, stopping prep also, if anybody seroconverts, if there's an allergic reaction or severe intolerance, although that's very, very rare, any non-adherence to medication, we will do all the counseling possible to encourage adherence um, and, and try to assist the patient in daily medication use to try to keep them on prep. Oftentimes, patients uh, may discontinue PrEP on their own uh, if they feel like their risk for HIV is, is reduced, so they have a reduced perceived risk of acquiring HIV. They either entered a monogamous relationship, they're no longer openly dating. 
Um, and protection wanes usually seven to 10 days after stopping daily prep. How do we restart? Um, I tell folks, call me right away and get your HIV test done prior to restarting. Do not restart on your own. Do not take your own supply out of your own cupboard, whatever you've saved up from last time and restart um, without an HIV test. Because in the event that they have a hidden HIV infection that they don't know about and they restart PrEP on their own, it can cause a resistant um, strain of HIV. And we have seen that in the studies. So really important. Okay, now during an initiation of PrEP and how to assess somebody's risk of getting HIV, we're going to do a complete and comprehensive sexual history. And um, I was not taught how to do a sexual history in pharmacy school. Um, and I think a lot of curriculums are probably missing this part in, in pharmacy school. And so let's do a brief summary on how to take a sexual history. We're gonna use all of our patient interview skills and we're gonna to try to use open-ended questions. The CDC has a, a great tool um, on how to take a sexual history and it's very brief. It takes literally just a few seconds, if not a couple minutes. Um, but a good memory is called the five P's. We're gonna ask about partners, practice or the type of sex they're having, protection, past history of STIs and pregnancy. Um, so partners, we're gonna ask, um, do you have sex with men, uh, men, women, or both? And that's language provided by the CDC. Now we know um, that to be inclusive, we're going to use a little bit more open-ended language, and I'll demonstrate that in the next couple of slides. How many partners have you had in the last six months? Um, do you know the status of your partners? Um, the type of sex, we're going to make sure that we know what kind of sex, because um, as earlier, what Renee mentioned is that different types of sex have different risks for HIV acquisition. Protection, what are you doing to protect yourself against STIs? And that's really try to, to get at what their condom use is like. Past history of STIs, we know that STIs are a risk factor um, for acquiring HIV, so we wanna make sure we have a good, accurate history of their STIs. And what are you doing to prevent pregnancy for both men and women, okay? So it's really important when we're taking a sexual history to really understand sexuality and sexual orientation. Um, so first off, there's biological sex. So what the person was born with, or female, intersex, male. Then there's also gender, gender identity, how someone thinks about themselves. Um, examples are transgender female, transgender male, non-binary, and cisgender means um, what, female, um, born as female. Gender expression is how someone demonstrates their genders through act or dress. Um, so are they feminine? Are they androgynous or masculine? And sexual orientation is who someone is physically, spiritually, and emotionally drawn to. So are they heterosexual, bisexual, gay, lesbian, queer, or non-binary? Trans people um, are disproportionately affected by HIV. So it's very important that as PrEP providers that we really understand the health needs of this patient population. Um, transgender people are more likely to acquire HIV 
because there's a higher percentage of individuals that trade sex for commodities, they have receptive anal sex without condoms, um, have multiple sex partners in the last three months, and oftentimes are living with HIV. Uh, transgender women are 49 times more likely to acquire HIV. So we're gonna do a complete sexual history taking and it might look different for people for this population group because um, of the type of, of sex that they're having. And we wanna make sure that, make sure we know whether or not they're on any gender affirming hormones and whether or not they've had any gender affirming surgeries. Okay, so let's take a um, somebody who was born female at birth, but is a trans male. Um, they we want to make sure whether or not they have had any surgeries, um, if they have an intact uterus or ovaries, because we're going to need to make sure that we do pregnancy screening at each and every follow up appointment. Okay. PrEP does not affect any gender affirming um, hormones. That's a question oftentimes that we'll get. Will this affect my um, estrogen or any of my testosterone? No, it does not. Uh, daily PrEP is recommended for trans people. Okay. So it's really important that we have very sex positive conversations. Um, and when we have sex positive conversations and we openly talk about sex, we reduce the stigma around sex. And it also makes our patients more comfortable and more honest and forthcoming with the information. Um, we're going to have open conversations about HIV risk, sexual health concerns, and sexual activities and, and how much sex they're having. Um, this is going to strengthen the patient-provider relationship. And I find when I have these types of conversations with patients, um, speaking at their level and on their language is the most appropriate way to develop this relationship. In the next few slides, uh, Renee and I will do a role play and we'll give you an example of this. Okay. So some sex positive, non-judgmental communication. Um, we're going to talk to a patient in an uh, open, non-judgmental manner. We're going to avoid assumptions on age, appearance, and gender. We're going to listen to how a patient addresses themselves, and, and we're going to address them in similar language. So a great example of older types of language um, that may have been used is, you always use condoms, right? You're assuming condom use, um, but we all know not everyone uses condoms, not everyone can use condoms. So rather, we're going to rephrase the question, how do you protect yourself from HIV and STIs? Um, you have a male patient that comes into your office um, and you make the assumption, do you have a wife or a girlfriend? You're going to rephrase that and say, are you currently in a relationship or do you have a partner? And allow them to open up and um, provide description on who they have, who their partners are. Instead of, do you have sex with women? Tell me about your current sex life. Uh, what are the genders of your partners? What body parts do you have sex with? And I use this a lot. What body parts do you have sex with? Um, some patients um, may not know a lot of sexual lingo, and so uh, they may be more comfortable speaking on terms of, oh, I have sex with my front hole or I have sex with my back hole. Okay? So we're going to speak to on their level with their language. So what are some risk reduction techniques um, for sexual risk? Um, so we all know using condoms consistently and correctly each and every single time you have sex is going to reduce your risk of acquiring HIV. However, we all know in practice and in real life that that may not always happen. So what are some other counseling techniques we can provide to a patient to still reduce their risk of uh, acquiring HIV? 
That's going to be making sure that they use lubrication, the right kind of lubrication um, for the right types of sex. So there's water-based lubrication and silicone-based lubrication. A lot of individuals like silicone for anal sex because it lasts a little bit longer and has a better lubricating cushion effect than water-based lubrication. Um, but it's important that they use lubrication for anal sex to minimize the risk of fissures and tears. Um, reducing the number of unfamiliar partners. And so instead, if somebody comes to you and says, you know, I've had 30 partners in the last three months, um, can they reduce it down to 20 partners in the last three months? Making sure that they know the HIV status of their partners, ask before they have sex with a partner, making sure that they ask them, hey, when was the last time you got tested or do you know your status? Um, because if partners are um, frequently getting tested as well, that reduces uh, their risk of acquiring HIV. Frequent HIV and STI testing and reducing the number of transactional sex encounters. Okay, so oftentimes if people are having sex for shelter reasons or um, for food reasons, how can we assist the patient in getting shelter or getting um, food to, to minimize the amount of transactional sex uh, they have to have in order to have a place to stay? As a provider, um, we can provide resources for social support and housing. Um, we can also recommend and provide condoms. We can also offer education on PEP and TAS and assist with linkage to alcohol and substance use uh, abuse treatment. Now, for people who inject drugs, what are some risk reduction techniques? We all know if we can all tell patients, well, just don't inject drugs and that will reduce your risk of acquiring HIV. But in real life, that's not always feasible. So we want to um, maximize harm reduction. So we're going to help patients and counsel patients on how to obtain clean injection supplies. And if they can't get clean injection supplies for each and every single time they inject, reducing the number of times they share their uh, needle supplies with somebody else. Okay, or reducing it down to a bubble that they reduce uh, a bubble of people that they share with and only within that bubble of people. Um, bleaching um, supplies, providing bleaching supplies uh, to a patient. Um, they can bleach your needles and injection equipment frequently to clean it and disinfect it if they can't get clean supplies. Um, use non-injection drugs. So instead of injecting methamphetamine, um, are they able to smoke um, or finding alternate um, uh, ways of uh, taking their drugs and also enter a drug treatment program. As a provider, we will uh, assist in linkage to alcohol and substance abuse treatment, provide regular HIV and STI testing, offer education on PrEP, uh, PEP and TAFs, and recommend clean needle and equipment. Thanks so much for listening into today's episode from the 2020 Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. It's features and content like this that make the ASHB Mid-Year Clinical Meeting the place to learn and to take your practice to the next level. Be sure to join us in December for more great clinical content. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.